The Tom Woods Show, episode 1552. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. A lot of our people complain that the Pentagon spends and wastes a lot of money, but the damage it does to the American economy and to American society is much greater than just that. It deforms the economy in ways most people don't even realize. Get the full story in my brand new free ebook, The Pentagon Versus the Economy. Pick it up at militaryeconomy.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I cannot believe in yesterday's episode, in the introductory portion, I did not mention what Gene does today. I did mention his career at Barron's, a very distinguished career, but I did not mention that he runs the Soho Forum. He's the director of the Soho Forum in New York City, which is an amazing debate series that covers extremely important and contentious issues that are of interest to libertarians. And they are civil, by and large. They're really, really thought-provoking. It's not just a lot of heat. There's a lot of light shed in these debates. So thesohoforum.org, absolutely indispensable, because even if you don't live in New York City, you can get the podcast version and listen to the debates or watch them at your leisure. And it's not going to be time you'll regret spending, really. These are very, if you've heard any Soho Forum debates, you know what I'm talking about. These are really, really well done. So thesohoforum.org is where I urge you to go. So today we're going to talk about uh, Gene's development into a libertarian. He has the weirdest, most unlikely libertarian story. His tale of how he got there is so unlikely and ridiculous <laughs> that I can't resist sharing it with you. I mean, it. nobody becomes a libertarian this way. <laughs> let's just say that. So anyway, let's bring Gene back on. Gene, welcome back. Uh, good to be back, Tom, for the second day of Gene Epstein Week. All right, good. Now, we're going to finish up where we left off yesterday, and then we're going to get into Gene's uh, three bits of wisdom, the yeah, pillars oh, of okay. wisdom from yeah, Gene. Wisdom, yeah. Okay, so, the, but first I want to know, okay, so you had, yeah. let's just put it, mildly here, Gene, yeah. uh, an unorthodox upbringing. And I don't yeah. mean that in the Jewish sense, right? I mean, a highly unorthodox upbringing, well, right? It, yeah. I guess in both senses, right? But, well, but absolutely. And and, right. and it does it does relate because I think that, well, I could get into that, Tom, but it's probably not important. Go ahead. Oh, okay. All right. So we covered a lot of stuff that yes. uh, I bet you've not discussed with a whole lot of people no, before. No. So that's all uh, from the previous episode. But yeah. what we we did hear you kind of uh, wrestling with ideas uh, mm. to some extent, yeah. but we did not leave you off as a libertarian in the last episode. So no. I want to know at what age it is, how old a guy are you, yeah. and what are the circumstances in which you actually – because my, my recollection of the general story is yeah. Yeah. you came across Man, Economy, and State. Most right. listeners of this podcast will know what that is. That's yeah. Murray Rothbard's economic treatise. It's yeah. a very, very long and dense yeah. book. Yeah. It is not the kind of – it's the kind of book you read when you are already – an adept. You're already yeah, committed yeah. to this yeah. and you just want the foundations. Yeah. It is not the kind of book yeah. that, let me be blunt here, Gene, that yeah. a normal person yeah, just right. pulls off the shelf and says, you know, I should give this a shot. Yeah. And my understanding is that's exactly what you did. How did that happen? That's right, uh, Tom. This is this is going to be the useless part of the discussion of Gene Epstein Week because this is how not to become a libertarian, yeah. but, how, but how I became one anyway. How it happened to me, which w was that I uh, meandered through college, 
sleepwalked through college mostly. And then I had a pass at trying to become a Jewish novelist. Might as well mention that. But Philip Roth was doing much better work than I. And so in 19, uh, my year out of college, I was at San Francisco State in creative writing. Uh, And then also, of course, dodging the draft and and determined, by the way, to go to prison uh, rather than leave the country if I were drafted. And then uh, I I came back to New York and enrolled at the New School uh, for Social Research, as it was then called, because I I still felt I was a democratic socialist and I actually wanted to study under Robert Heilbronner whose stuff I had been reading, and uh, he seemed like the ideal uh, exemplar for me because he was a very popular, really he was the most popularly read economist probably in the world. Uh, he'd written World Leader Philosophers, he'd made a fortune from his books. And so I wanted to go there, and I did. And in fact, success struck me. I became Heilbrunner's protege, his teaching assistant, and he had me write portions of his not very good textbook, and then uh, recommended me for jobs, and in fact encouraged me to follow in his footsteps. But uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, because in economics, uh, and probably to this day, it was not difficult to get teaching jobs, I was uh, partially supporting myself by teaching uh, part-time at St. John's University and then half-time at at Richmond College of City University, and then groping my way uh, through, uh, trying to... uh, to see what kind of economist or what kind of socialist I really was. And I was getting increasingly dispirited. I had no real respect for Hobrunner and his writings. And uh, that was my secret about him. Uh, I, I, I was his intellectual valet and I, he was not a hero to me, even though he was very nice to me personally. And uh, by chance, here I was all ready to drop out, and I didn't. I was never much of a student in my own right, and I really wasn't too enamored of teaching anyway, and I didn't really like what I was teaching. But then that's the eureka moment that you mentioned. I was browsing, as I always do. I'm a big browser of books, as so many people are. And I picked up a couple of times in the New School Library the two volumes of Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, and then I think by the third or fourth browsing, somebody I just sort of vaguely heard of, he'd actually collaborated, Rothbard collaborated a little bit with a couple of left-wing writers on foreign policy. So I said, I think I'd seen his name there. So I read the book through, and that's the book that basically started me on my way. And indeed, um, Economic Controversies is a collection of Rothbard's essays published by the Mises Institute that I always recommend because I had the honor of writing an introduction to that collection. And the first sentence of that introduction reads, it was nearly 40 years ago that Murray Rothbard changed my life. You know, I share the same incredulity, Tom, that you have about why Murray Rothbard can be often so roundly criticized. You know, it's like it's like saying, you know, that Beethoven must have done, uh, he, he wrote some lousy stuff every once in a while. Well, Beethoven probably did, you know, and Rothbard wrote, was so prolific that uh, he, was ne- he wasn't right all the time. Not everything he wrote was chiseled in stone or completely believable. And indeed, I think it's important 
important for you and I to insist on saying that you should not read Rothbard as though it's holy writ. Uh, uh, he could be wrong. Never suspend your critical faculties, even when you're reading somebody as thoughtful and brilliant as Rothbard. But of course, obviously, analogizing him with Beethoven, Rothbard did do some inf incredible symphonies. And one of his great symphonies was indeed Man, Economy, and State. I mentioned a few things over time about what was so stunning about Rothbard's insights, in particular, why the book spoke to me so directly was that he had many digressions, has many digressions in that book in which he indicts mainstream economics. And that was important to me because he was teaching me that there really could be an economics. He was indeed teaching me that Austrian economics is almost a redundancy because we all naturally, this is part of my hobby horse, we all naturally think in Austrian terms. By Austrian terms, I mean that we think in terms of human motivation in markets, of human incentives, and we reason it through sort of a priori. Don't delude yourself into thinking that we discover the law of demand in particular, which is a good example, because we look at empirical data. Empirical data is not going to teach us why we pay less for something the more that something is available. And uh, as I like to stress, uh, even Milton Friedman, who wrote this crazy essay about methodology and economics, when he's really writing rationally about economics, or most of the mainstream, they are thinking like Austrians. But I want to just mention one insight I've never mentioned before that especially struck me in Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, and that was the returns to the capitalist. The one thing that Rothbard sort of enjoyed insisting on is that, is that there are no to returns to the capitalist in the sense that there are returns to the owner of land and resources or the owner of the labor. The laborer gets a return. The owner of the land and resources gets a return. But as Rothbard said, when you think about it logically, capital, capital equipment, or even intangible capital, it all comes from labor and resources. So it all derives back from labor and resources. And so therefore, there is no special return, he wrote in, in exclamation, there's no special return that the capitalist gets. And this was sort of an ironic nod to all the left-wingers I, uh, I, I was hanging out with the new school. No, there are no, no special returns to the capitalist. The only way the capitalist gets a return has to do with time preference, with putting up money in time one and waiting for time two and time three to get his return or by taking entrepreneurial risk. That's the only way the capitalist ekes out his return. And of course, because of time preference, there really there already always is some return to the capitalist. And of course, because of risk and entrepreneurship, they're often very large returns. And of course, capital equipment can appreciate over time in value, but that's partly because of the anticipation and the or the luck that the capitalist has in making the capital equipment he, he he's, he's financed more valuable. But so again, though, the point that land, resources, and labor are basically where the returns go to and the capitalist just builds on that was a very important insight for me and, and a sort of beautiful illustration of the ways in which an Austrian can think through how economics, how the markets 
really work. Um, of course, beyond that, reading uh, Rothbard on the on the regression theorem, uh, which I, I guess harkens back mainly to Menger, of course, mainly popularized by Mises, but the idea that money, money has value only because of what it could buy yesterday, and that yesterday it had value only because of what we could buy the day before, and that if we regress back and back in time, we ask, well, how did have money have value on day zero, on the first day, something was used as money. And of course, as Mises, Rothbard, and Menger point out, that's because it originated in some kind of a commodity. And that was another sort of beautiful insight, a sort of inference that can reconstruct history on the basis of the logic of human action. So I was dazzled by Rothbard's economics. And then, in fact, it took me a while to get beyond the sort of the, the Marxist hangup, the Marxist hangup about how do wages rise in a progressing economy. And it was really uh, Mises in, the, in Human Action later on who sort of had the killer statement that if workers are underpaid in one industry, then there will be competition, there'll be movement Profit-seeking capitalists will bid up that labor and take advantage of that spread. And so reading Rothbard, reading Man, Economy, and State then started me on a tear to read all of the Austrians, to read almost all of Rothbard. To this day, of course, we're only, only beginning to catch up with Rothbard's books, as, as, as we lately learned. He's nearly dead for 25 years, and now we have a new book by Rothbard coming out. I traveled to the Laissez-Faire bookshop, Laissez-Faire bookshop, downtown on Mercer Street in downtown Manhattan, then a, a bricks-and-mortar bookshop, and I would browse for a couple of hours every weekend and buy a couple of books. So I read virtually everything in the Austrian canon, and then discovered, once I got past the idea as a bleeding heart of how capitalism is necessary to the material improvement of the masses and how that dynamic works, once I got past that, then, of course, then I got to the next part, which is an understanding, mainly from Rothbard. I think I mentioned this to you recently, Tom, that it was really when Rothbard wrote about how in a world of scarce resources, under anything other than capitalism, where some authority monopolizes those scarce resources, they will have to ration them. If, if the price mechanism isn't doing it, then the state will do it. So the state will have a huge temptation to use that very legitimate excuse to make sure that the sole form doesn't get financed and that dissident publications don't get financed. And so understanding then that capitalism is necessary, although insufficient to freedom, because of course, obviously, if you if, if there is a state, then we don't want the state to choke off freedom of speech and press or freedom to do anything with material goods by owning those material goods in the first place. But of course, the government can always use reprisals against you. So I'm not saying them, and I wouldn't argue, and it did not argue to the socialists recently, that capitalism is sufficient to freedom, but capitalism is absolutely essential to freedom. So that was my odyssey, Tom, uh, summed up, and uh, I guess that sort of kisses it off, unless you have a question. It does. I have a follow-up, though, about your sure. family. Oh. I mean, did, did, they, did you ever say to them, by the way, yeah. I've repudiated yeah. everything you taught me? I mean, how yeah. did that go? Oh. And I, by the way, I would not ask a personal question like that oh. if you hadn't divulged to us some extremely oh. personal details. Oh, Tom, no, absolutely. That's, that's part of my point. No, indeed. I, I'm a very candid person. 
And uh, I mean, you could ask me even more personal stuff than that. And so, and the only thing I have to scrupulously, I mentioned my son with pride because the only thing I have to scrupulously avoid, which I occasionally lapse with respect to doing, is making sure that I don't drag my candor into those people who are still alive, like my kids or uh, or the woman I married to or or my older brother. You know, they have a right to their privacy. But how did how did the family? respond. Well, obviously, it is a kind of a mixed bag because, you know, I'll mention my daughter. My daughter makes fun of me a little bit. Only in this regard, when I mention my daughter, who's progressive, she makes fun of me a little bit because she said, Dad, you learned how to split the difference. You know, you could take your mother's anti-militarism, her her objection to U.S. foreign policy, and you can incorporate that into your worldview. And then, of course, you could take grandpa's, your father's pro-capitalism, and you could bring that to a new level. So you could sort of please them both. You know, you could say, hey, look, I think, you know, you're right. You were right, although for the wrong reason about American imperialism, you know, and uh, and I, of course, was out there objecting to the Vietnam War. And then I could say to my father, well, you were right about capitalism, although, uh, and in fact, by the way, I, I used to feed my father some arguments. His, fight, his face would light up because, uh, you know, gave him some arguments that he had not really read up on. And so that pleased him as well. However, while that's true, Tom, I guess you have to realize that, you know, if you read a little Philip Roth, you know, in the Jewish families, how you shoot and get shot at, or how people argue, how we, you know, ask two Jews a question and you get four opinions or five opinions, you know, all those old cliche jokes actually do apply. I was very happy very happy to argue with them both. Very happy to be able to tell my mother that uh, her allegiance to the Soviet Union was just a joke and argue with her about that. So we got into some very heated discussions. She didn't disown me. You know, in fact, I got a job. Here's something funny. I got a job on Wall Street as director of commodity research on Wall Street. My mother was such a mixed bag. The bourgeois Jewish mom came out in her and she was just bursting with pride that her son has a high paying job on Wall Street. You know, and uh, although, by the way, she came up, she, she, she used to used to have a few good zingers. Here's a funny story about her. My son, who thought she was like the most original character of the 20th century, as he used to put it about his grandmother, he said to her once, Grandma, she, my, my mother used to watch Louis Rukeyes' Wall Street Week and invest in the stock market. So my mother said, my, my, my son Jim said to her, Grandma, you're a communist. Can you really in good conscience invest in the stock market? And my mother's answer was, what? Only the capitalists should get rich? You know, so that was a good uh, response to her. And so she was a mixture. And so I could needle her. And then I would argue foreign policy with my father. And of course, really offend him, you know, about the insults that I was, that I was, um, uh, you know, I, I was lodging various insults against the American government. But of course, during the Vietnam War, we'd get into heated arguments. So the answer to your question, Tom, is that like any uh, person cut from the Jewish cloth, I didn't mind starting family arguments with everybody, especially with my parents. Okay, that's a good answer. Now, okay. we've got just under 15 minutes oh. to stay, if we're going to stay on schedule. Oh. So we can either oh. try to do the three pieces of, of Gene Epstein wisdom, yeah. Or okay. I can throw some more uh, Gene Epstein's life questions at you. What, well, which would you like to do? Oh well, Tom, I, I'm trying to sympathize with my audience. Maybe, maybe, maybe the audience hasn't has had enough of my life. All right, because I did want to ask about what it was like to be uh, okay. chief economist at the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, but, me, oh, I was not. By the way, Tom, I had you know, I never not a big deal, but I was 
senior economist. I reported to the chief, and as a matter of fact, so I, I, uh, I, I have to say, no, I did not get that far in life. I was a senior economist. Uh, and uh, it, it, just, it says that in your bio with the Mises. I know, too. does it yeah. really? Yeah, I guess it says I chief, to, former chief economist. I, I wouldn't I, have just made that up. Oh, no, Tom, no, no, no. Somebody I, else I, made it up, I, and I, I just repeated somebody it. Somebody else made it up, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tom, you, <laughs> no, no, I was, well, I mean, I, no, I, okay, the new, no, I mean, I guess in my interest, people, I was there for nearly 14 years. And, you know, and, and matter of fact, it affected me in two ways. One of them was sort of was like naive, a naive way in which it affected me. You know, by the way, when I when I told certain people who didn't know a whole lot about Wall Street, I'd just gotten a job with the New York Stock Exchange, like my mother, or in fact, I had an aunt, my mother, they, they would say, yeah, okay, job with the New York Stock Exchange, but who is your employer? <laughs> I mean, they said, my employer is the New York Stock Exchange. They have uh, regulatory staff, they have economists, planners. I said, I'm working for them. I'm working for the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, so that they didn't realize, but- But, but that, well, I don't understand what the job consists of. What does oh, an economist do at the New York oh, Stock Exchange? Oh, nothing much, nothing much is the answer. Oh, well, but, but, but you were there for 14 years, <laughs> yeah, you must yeah. have done something. Well, I, well, with part of what I did, was we we okay? Part of what I did to earn my salary, because I better answer your question directly before I get to what else I did, was that again the New York Stock Exchange was kind of you know had this public image, and so there was an encouragement by uh, the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange to turn out sort of studies of the economy to sort of enhance our image, and so that's what we did. We put out, we turned out studies of productivity and investment. We were occasionally uh, asked to consult with the publicists and uh, with, with PR people and lobbyists in Washington by the New York Stock Exchange. And so that was the that was our role. And we were on the, we had one chief economist and let's see, two, just three of us. It was basically just four of us. One person was called a director who wasn't really a director, two senior economists, a director and a chief economist. So we're just four people. And the, and I began to realize that I could get my work done like in you know uh, Thursday or Friday. The job didn't take a whole lot of time. So that's why I was able, by the way, to go to afternoon seminars at NYU. But this was a time when I was learning my Austrian economics. There was a, there were afternoon seminars, there was evening stuff. I actually once crashed Murray Rothbard's class at the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute. I was so cra little crazy, I didn't even ask Rothbard if I could audit, if I could just sit in. And Rothbard looked at me rather weirdly when I raised my hand to ask a question. Um, but that was my one encounter with Rothbard. I had a phone conversation, which which I mentioned before with Rothbard, not a whole lot. But anyway, this by and large, it was a slow-moving job. It was a decent salary. And so I realized I could do a John Stuart Mill. I published some articles. I wrote a piece for Inquiry magazine, which was then basically libertarian uh, monthly about deregulation in the markets. And so I had a sort of a leisurely life. I wrote some other pieces under a pseudonym for Challenge magazine, the content of which is probably not interesting enough to get into, but I wrote under a pseudonym because George Orwell had been a teenage hero of mine. I, I originally uh, called my, I usually use the pseudonym, pseudonym Eric Blair, that was Orwell's original name. And then shortly thereafter, I decided to use the pseudonym Winston Smith. And it wasn't until 1984 that people began to realize where I got that. So that was, of course, the name of the main character uh, in 1984, the novel by George Orwell. So that's 
basically what I did. I had a, I had a basic, I, I had to sort of settle in the idea that I, I've got a wife and kids, I'm earning a decent enough salary, and why don't I just sort of do, pull what I mentioned to, to Bob Murphy was a John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill's father, James Mill, taught him that the best thing to do is not to become an academician in a university, get a job with a uh, with a bureaucracy, and the job will be very undemanding. John Stuart Mill, as you may know, uh, worked for the Dutch East India Company, and he would apparently save all his work for a Friday and get everything done in that one day and then otherwise do his thing. So that was the style I got into. And then uh, the chief economist did get fired. They put in a new guy whom I couldn't get along with. And that's when, after my getting, I transferred to another uh, division and I didn't like that. And then ultimately there was a downsizing and I got fired after 14 years. So that was what I did at the New York Stock Exchange. But also, by the way, I became very enamored of worker ownership uh, and the worker ownership movement and got to know a lot of the people in that field. And because I, I did a, a, a study called People and Productivity and then a book length thing called People and Productivity for the New York Stock Exchange, none of which really is that good or worth reading uh, to this day, but I did that and then gave me an excuse to go to all the conferences of the worker ownership movement. And I think that one of the reasons why I became enamored of worker ownership and control is because the nature of the New York Stock Exchange, because it was so politicized, because the chairman was, you know, I don't want to mention names, but the chairman was a was just somebody who had contacts in Washington. And the whole culture of the place was that the people at the top were just none too swift. We're often just sort of egotistical, difficult types. And so and so this sort of affected my attitude toward the people in charge. You know, and of course, it made me realize, of course, that there are other places in which bosses sort of waste their employees. They don't get the best out of their people because they're a bunch of egotists. But those people can be flushed out in a competitive economy. But that was one thing that the New York Stock Exchange really wasn't. It was basically a, a quasi-public organization. And so that's why I became enamored of worker ownership. And my mother, by the way, supported me in this because I said, well, that's, you know, that's when I, by the way, hit on the point that you don't need socialism. All you need is a worker ownership movement. And I did meet people. And to this day, I know of, of a couple of them who really care about worker ownership within capitalism. They do like, uh, you know, this tax favoritism imposed on employee stock ownership plans. It's not so terrible, not a big sin. They do like that. So they're not exactly libertarians, but they're good people. And that, of course, is what, by the way, helped me in trying to point out to the socialists that there is a, there is a way for them to build socialism from the ground up, just bring about worker ownership. It's perfectly compatible with capitalism. But the point is that at that point, I was more enamored of it than I am today because I was just sort of viscerally experiencing what the dumb, bad bosses could be like and realizing that, that there was a lot of knowledge at the bottom, knowledge in the middle levels that they simply weren't tapping. So that pretty much sums up my 14 years at the New York Stock Exchange. All right, Gene, I think what we're going to do, because we have three episodes left of the Gene Epstein Week, I want to plot out for people what to expect. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow we're going to get to, Gene sent me a, a list of half a dozen intellectual uh, hobby horses 
of his. Things that make him crazy, errors, people, wrong way that people think about certain things and what's, mm-hmm. what's the right way to think about them. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk about some books that influence Gene. Gene sent me a list of something like 11. There's, that would take us four Gene Epstein weeks yeah, yeah. to get through. So I'm going to extract the ones I want to hear about. We'll do that. Mm-hmm. And then in the closing moments of Gene Epstein week, we will <laughs> finally get to the three points of wisdom from Gene Epstein. So that's yes. what we'll do. We'll leave it all there. So the show notes page, I guess I'll link to, you know, man economy and state and human action and stuff of that nature. So mm-hmm. we'll put that at tomwoods.com slash 1552. And Gene, we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Tom. And I just want to leave you with one thing. I really do want to mention the Rothbard book that I've never, For a New Liberty. And so uh, I think it's, uh, it is a classic, uh, For a New Liberty by Murray Rothbard. And uh, maybe we'll mention that when we discuss books in a couple of days. Yeah, For a New Liberty. Um, you know, there are some parts of it that I would have done differently, but really? I, it's a great, well, I mean, we obviously I don't, I don't like this, you know, but I don't want, yeah. if, if we have an argument about abortion, hey, but we're going to need like oh, eight genes. We're not going to, oh, oh, we'll you know, I mean, it's, it's oh, mostly oh, that, it's oh, mostly oh, that stuff. Forget about the abortion part of it. No, but I mean, indeed, I mean, 90% of that book is. Oh, oh, yeah, no, no, it's a great, it's a great, it's just that because of that, there are whole groups of people that I can't give that book to because they'll they'll look at it, they'll flip right to that section, they'll say, "Wow, well, oh, I knew it. You libertarians are terrible people." You know, and it's oh, just just you know, really, book, Tom. Yeah, well, Gene, I don't know if you noticed about about abortion people. Some a lot of these people. That's their issue, right? That's the well, one I thing. Know. It's, it's like the Armenians. Our oh. one thing oh. is the damn genocide recognition. You know, that's our one issue. I see. You know, I didn't remember, you know, it's in, of course, it's in Ethics of Liberty, the other, uh, the more. Oh, yeah, the other stuff that's yeah. that's that's objectionable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But. Well, 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 gosh, you know, that, that's funny because I, wa- I wanted to mention, especially because the crossover point is that I got, I, to my surprise, Nick Gillespie, who claims not to be a fan of Rothbard, admitted to me that Four New Liberty was a very important book in his development. And I began to think, you know, Four New Liberty is sort of dated, but not really. It's got so much refreshing Rothbardian stuff in it. Oh, yeah. No, it it is a good book overall. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. And especially when I was first getting into this yeah, and yeah. I wanted to read as much Rothbard as yeah, I could, yeah. I thought that was a great one-book distillation yeah. of where we stand in a variety of areas as yeah. well as an overall picture of, of yeah. libertarianism. But you're I mean, saying, well, okay, well, you're saying you would, uh, don't, you could recommend... I don't like the tone of, of really? that that whole section. I think it has a, oh. I, I think it has a, an almost contemptuous attitude toward people oh, who really? are genuinely concerned about, you know, like he's just... Uh, Flippantly, I think, dealing with some moral issues where I agree with him that the state shouldn't be involved, but I don't agree with him in trying to make it seem as if people concerned about this are, you know, should just be treated dismissively. I I don't think that's the approach I want to take. Here is the refreshing moment, everybody, because Tom and I, again, I would say, you know, Rothbard is, you know, the Beethoven of economics, but every once in a while, he didn't write a great tune. So Tom and I reserve the right to be critical even of the great Rothbard. Of course, yeah, I have no problem doing that. Yes. But but please, of course, Tom and I are just appalled. How can you deny the fact that this guy wrote so many great symphonies? Oh, I know. know. It's absurd. That's that's the thing that we just can't understand. How can you not acknowledge the the fact that this guy is just extraordinary to the point where yeah. Tom Woods have to make, I'm kidding. I'm going to shut up, Tom. And All right. Okay. So everybody, uh, we've got some really, really good, I mean, we've, I wanted to get this stuff out there about Gene and his background, how he came to this stuff. And there's, there's some really good nuggets in here. Now we get into Gene doing what he does best, which is uh, the, I, I don't want to say demolition of, of 
bad arguments because we're also going to be building up good arguments. But the really intellectual stuff, it's coming, folks. So expect that tomorrow. And thanks for listening, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.